0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Church, will you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 14? We continue... In our series through the Gospel of Matthew, and as we enter into this scene, this most famous scene, the feeding of the 5,000, we get a glimpse of the, of the miraculous. And more than that, we get a glimpse of the one who caused it. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, if you could remain standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Verse 16 But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Beloved, this is God's holy word. You may be seated. Who is Jesus? It seems like a simple enough question to ask, right? But as we see the countless ways in which Jesus has been rendered throughout history, we come to find that humanity is not on the same page when we try to answer the question who Jesus is. As Philip Yancey notes, If you peruse modern scholarship on the matter, you will find a variety of depictions of who Jesus is, ranging from a political revolutionary, a Galilean charismatic, a mere rabbi, and even a hallucinogenic leader of a sacred mushroom cult. People throughout the ages have sought to paint a portrait with words of who Jesus is, and the result is a canvas of literature with all sorts of different form and line and shape and color, some more accurate than others, and others altogether missing the mark of who Jesus really is. And here, as we approach the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Matthew here is also interested in painting. Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, and John, in fact, are the first painters as they put their pen to the scroll to write their gospel accounts to describe who Jesus is and why he came. And so this morning we approach this most famous scene where Jesus multiplies five loaves of bread and two fish. And we come to see, as a result, we see a miracle, but underneath this, we see Jesus a little bit more clearly as Matthew is putting brush strokes on the canvas of his gospel account. When working with narratives, with stories within the gospels, oftentimes what we see in the, in the stories is that the structure of the text follows a plot line. There's a setting, there's rising action, there's a climactic moment, and then there's resolution and a new setting. And that often works as a good template for a sermon structure. But for our purposes this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to note and, and draw out of this text what is here. And that is three brushstrokes of who Jesus is as Matthew depicts it. And so first, the first brushstroke, Jesus is compassionate. Second, Jesus is accessible. And third, which everything culminates to this third point, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is compassionate, he's accessible, and Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Look with me, church, now at verse 13 as we jump in. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And in this opening verse, we get a little bit of context about what's going on. Right off the bat, Matthew notes when Jesus heard this. It's this marker, this temporal marker, when Jesus heard this. And we come to discover, per last week, that Jesus is hearing about John the Baptist's beheading that John the Baptist has been murdered. And so when Jesus hears about this, he goes and he departs to find a place of solitude and safety. Remember, this is a pivotal point in Matthew's gospel account. Things are turning more directly toward the cross as Jesus is having these heated debates and discussions with the Pharisees and religious elite, he's rejected in his hometown. And John the Baptist, who is pointing people to Jesus, he also is rejected by the most extreme measures, being beheaded by King Herod. So things are moving toward the cross. Therefore, when Jesus hears about John, he knows that his hour has not come yet, and so he goes to find rest and solitude and safety. However, it doesn't take long in this passage before we discover that his plans for safety and for solitude are foiled. Look at the second half of verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. The fame of Jesus is spreading. The fame of Jesus is spreading, and his followers are spreading. They're literally following him on foot here in this text. The Sea of Galilee would have been small enough to actually walk around and to meet Jesus on the other side before he lands. And so Jesus, he gets in the boat and he crosses the sea. The people hear about it, and it's this foot race to go beat him before he lands. And just picture this scene with me Jesus desiring solitude, desiring a place of refuge and safety as he hears about the death of John the Baptist, his cousin. He gets in the boat, he crosses the other side, and as he steps on land, as he is trying to find rest and solitude, to pray, certainly to grieve over his cousin, what does he find but the exact opposite scenario of what he was looking for? What would your reaction be? I know if if I were in the boat, I probably would be thinking or feeling my heart sink in my chest. Hope deferred makes the heart sick and the hope of finding peace and quiet would have been trampled on by this horde of people but Jesus is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts and so Jesus doesn't see a horde of people. He sees sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on these people he sees sinners in need of a savior. He doesn't see inconveniences, but instead he sees the exact object of his deepest affections, the reason for which he came in the first place. And so he tends the sick. He heals the sick. He tends for these sheep. He draws near to sinners and sufferers instead of pushing out to sea and paddling in the opposite direction. And this is the first brushstroke. Jesus is absolutely compassionate. There is no one like Jesus. This is what we see right off the bat when we gaze at this portrait of who Jesus is. And this is otherworldly. There's no one like him. As Dane Ortland puts it, The high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. And yet, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact. And instantly withdrawing, we picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition. And my question to you, church, is what do you see when you vision, when you picture Christ's countenance toward you? Is the picture that you come up with in your mind this same portrait that we see here in Matthew 14? Dear brother and sister in Christ, have you forgotten that he is still compassionate toward you and he's not fed up with you? That's why Paul would write in Romans 5.10, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? If he saves those who are rebels, those who have no love, no affection toward him, and brings them to himself, won't he certainly have compassion on us? Won't he continue to be compassionate toward his people? This is the point. Jesus is compassionate. He's moved with pity and compassion. His heart swells with it as he steps off the boat and he is moved with compassion right now as he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. And it's the compassion of Jesus that we see in this text that necessarily leads to his accessibility. And this is the second brushstroke with which Matthew pens in this account. Jesus is accessible. Since Christ is compassionate toward the crowd, then he stays with them, he heals their sick. And so, as time elapses, a problem starts to surface on the horizon what was once a desired place of isolation now becomes a problem as they have this massive crowd of people there in this desolate place. In verses 15 through 17, the disciples lay it all out. They essentially say, nightfall is upon us. The day is spent We were coming to this place of solitude and that would have been fine for just us, but now there's over 5,000 people and the place of desolation, which would have been desirable for us, is a problem because there is no food here. They say all we have is five loaves and two fish. This is laughable. And what happens next is the setup for one of the greatest miracles ever performed by Christ himself, this passage at face value on the surface, this is about Jesus feeding a lot of people. But more than that, when we dig a little bit deeper, we come to find that this gets at the very heart of who Jesus is. Verse 15, the disciples say, this is a desolate place. So the disciples give their advice, what they think Jesus should do. They say, "This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves." They say, "The the crowd that came to you, Jesus, we want you to drive them away to go buy food and fend for themselves." And Christ says, "No." verse 16, Jesus says, they need not go away. These are the most precious words in this text. They need not go away. Jesus says, no, don't have them leave me and go fend for themselves. Don't have them go and buy, have them come and receive. Yes, this is a story about bread and fish being multiplied, but it's so much more than that. This is the heart of Christ. Because Jesus has compassion toward the crowd, toward the sick, toward the sufferer, toward the sinner who knows that they're in need of a savior, since he has compassion toward you and toward me, he therefore does not send us away. Jesus not only has compassion and pity, but he's moved with it. He actually does something with it. He will not have those who come to him be driven away. They need not go away. And this is exactly why Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Jesus doesn't say, most people who come to me, I will never cast out. He doesn't say, those of you who figure it all out and go buy and go provide some sort of righteousness, some sort of merit, then you could come back to me and I'll never cast you out. No, Jesus doesn't say that. The crowd here in this scene, they have nothing to offer Jesus. The only thing they have to offer Jesus is their sores, their leprosy, their sickness, their diseases, and Jesus would have it no other way. He's so drawn toward them. He's so accessible because this is his mission. And it's not mere obligation from the eternal person of the triune God, Jesus Christ. This is his delight. He loves to do this. And yet, there is a stubborn species within us that can't fathom that Jesus would actually be accessible, considering how sinful. We are. And this isn't just something outside of the church. I think this is especially true in the church because what happens when we come to Christ, we're convicted of our sin. We see our need for the Savior who can forgive us of all of our sins. We come running to him. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit to bring a kind of illumination of our desperate need before him. And then what happens in the Christian life is we grow and we grow in our awareness of how desperate we really are. We see ourselves in such need. We see ourselves impoverished. We see ourselves not being able to merit anything to, to, to earn God's grace and love. And so what often happens, instead of doing the thing that we did at the start, we tend to retreat, we tend to lurk, we tend to hide from God because we're guilty and we're ashamed. And we forget that Christianity has always been a sinner's religion. Jesus did not come for a beautiful church. He came for sinners and he came to make us beautiful. That's what he does. This isn't a go and buy and then come back religion. This is a come and receive from Christ. Christ. Christ gives. This is what he loves to do. Justification, right standing before God by your good Christian works will not do. Fleeing in guilt and shame from the open arms of Christ who says, come to me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Fleeing from this savior, will not do. Jesus not only accepts those who comes to him, he loves it. He absolutely loves it. He lives for this. Again, as Ortland writes, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. To put it the other way around, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. Do you see Jesus as accessible? Do you see him? Since Jesus did not turn away the crowds out of his compassion and out of his accessibility, we therefore in this next scene get to witness and marvel at Jesus the Messiah, his messianic nature on full display as Matthew continues to paint this portrait of Jesus. And that is the third and last point, Jesus as the Messiah. Look with me, church, at verse 18. And he said, Christ said, Bring them here to me. That is the loaves and the fish. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. These verses absolutely speak for themselves. What Jesus does here is absolutely miraculous. There's no other way of putting it. He orders the crowd to sit down. He takes the food. He looks up. Jesus does something so different than us. We, we tend to look, bow down and close our eyes. Jesus looks up and opens his eyes and he blesses and he, and he thanks the father and then he breaks the food and he gives it away and the rest is history. The text says there's even leftovers. There's 12 baskets full at the end of this. I don't know how many people are in this room. Probably about 100. Right, Hans? About 100? We, at the very least, there's 5,000 people. But we know there's more because there's 5,000 men. There's 5,000 people besides women and children. But just to say, 5,000 people, that would be 50 of us. 50 gatherings of us. This is what Jesus does. He feeds all of these people from five loaves and two fish. That would be like if Jesus fed us for a whole year, for 50 weeks. Absolutely miraculous what he does. And we don't know exactly how it all went down. I don't know if the multiplication is happened as they were breaking it, if the disciples could see and perceive what was actually taking place. Maybe it was multiplied in baskets, similar to the water being turned to wine in John chapter 2. We don't know exactly all the details about what's happening, but what we do know from this account is that this would have been a massive display, and it is a massive display of Jesus' messianic nature. For the Jewish people, this would have been a stunning reminder of the children of Israel after they are delivered from the land of Egypt being fed manna as it was rained down from heaven. This would have been a stunning, stark reminder of what God did in providing for his people through Moses. And yet, we see in this text, similar to the Israelites, led by Moses, they're in the wilderness, but here we have a even better Moses. For this is the one that the prophet Moses foretold about, this coming Messiah who would feed his people. Many Jewish people would have witnessed this miracle and they would have thought this has promised Messiah written all over it. And that's exactly why in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, after Jesus performs this sign, the people, they try to pull him away and they try to take him away to make him king because they recognize this is the Messiah. We wanna make you king. We wanna overthrow Rome. It's time. And Jesus says, no, it's not time. However, as miraculous as the feeding of the 5,000 is, what is astounding and what's, what's really at the core and heart of what Jesus is doing is he is pointing forward to the crucifixion. He is signaling for us the crucifixion, his impending death on the cross. Remember things in, this, in Matthew at this point, they're pivoting, they're hinging, they're moving toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, Jesus is rejected. Herod has killed John the Baptist and things are just gonna get ramped up as we continue moving through Matthew's gospel account. And here in this text, in this passage alone, Matthew is also pointing to the crucifixion because as Jesus gives bread away to the crowd, he is foreshadowing the giving away of his flesh upon the cross. This should be on the screen, John 6 35. In John's account Jesus has some commentary about what happened in the feeding of the 5000. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And just as the loaves were taken and torn apart, so too the Son of man was taken and torn apart. On the cross, Jesus was consumed at the cross so that we would receive life, so that he would be our sustenance. This is what Isaiah prophesied about, about this suffering servant who was to come. Sometimes we could think that Jesus only suffered at the cross, that that was his only moment of suffering, but he was a suffering servant from beginning to end. Jesus left the comforts of heaven, took on flesh and was born in a filthy manger. That's when it started. This suffering servant who came to endure for his people. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he endured all of life for his people. Even in this text, you you read this text, there's this desire that Jesus has for solitude, for safety, then there's this problem, right? There's a, a lot of people and not a lot of food. And then it kind of ends in this, this really nice way that the, the crowds are filled. All of them are satisfied, Matthew writes. There's leftovers, even more than 5,000, and then it just ends. But this is all at Jesus Christ's expense, Jesus didn't get what he was wanting. It's his sacrifice that is at the very core of what it means for him to be the Messiah. And this wraps up and ties up everything in this text. Jesus doesn't just talk about compassion. He's moved with it. He gets out of the boat He sacrifices his comforts, his desires. Jesus didn't merely pontificate about how to have access with him and the Father. He pours out his blood on the cross so that anyone who would come to him would have access to the Father through his blood and anyone can have access straight to Jesus. No need for a priest. We go straight to the great high priest. So who is Jesus? We see in this text, this beautiful portrait. Jesus is absolutely compassionate. He is beyond accessible because he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And so may we behold him. That's the application. May we behold him. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, that in beholding him, we would be transformed into his same glorious image. Let's pray, church. (sighs) Jesus, we wanna see you. Oh, and we cannot wait to see you face to face when the dim mirror will be taken away, God, would you, would you by your spirit convince us that you are compassionate, that you are accessible, that you are the Messiah, and not only on paper in doctrine, but Lord, would you convince us of these things for us? Would you convince us by your spirit Would you help us to see you for who you are and so walk and worship you in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you've called us to? God, would, by your grace, would we come to you? Would we not hesitate? Would we not wait till we get home? Would we come to you right now by faith? And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.